Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning will be from Psalm 19. If you are following along in the uh, Pew Bible, it will be found on page 541. <clears throat> Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much more, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you, Ray. So this past week, just a couple of days ago, um, I got a, Laura and I got a surprise visit from a friend of my father's. And my father had told him that I lived in the area and he wanted to come meet me. I think he was thinking to himself, I, I think he was, get this up here a little higher. I think he was thinking to himself, uh, Brian Hanley is a crazy man. Uh, I've got to see what his son is like. And I'm sure that he discovered that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And so he came and, and visited uh, with us for about 25 minutes. And immediately I realized why he was such good friends with my father. Um, and, and that's because, uh, well, he's just like my father. Uh, my, my father, just to kind of give you a snapshot of my dad, my dad has this uncanny ability to take any conversation and turn it into a conversation about politics, religion, or opera. Those are the three. Every conversation, he finds a way. If, if I were to say, you know, if we were talking about, you know, the NBA playoffs or something, which my dad and I would never talk about, but if we were talking about the NBA playoffs and I said something like, oh my goodness, did, did you see LeBron jump? He would say, yes, I did see Donald Trump. Right? I'm not kidding you. That's, the, that's how he takes it, and anything, he turns it to politics, to religion, or to opera. And as I started to talk with his friend, I mean, his friend wasn't like that, but what I realized after our 25-minute conversation is that the three things that we talked about were religion, politics, and opera. And the, the thing we talked about the most, though, interestingly enough, was religion. It's interesting, when people discover that I'm a pastor, either they avoid religion entirely 
or that's all they want to talk about. And he was a little more of the latter type. Uh, as it turns out, he's, he's Jewish, uh, but does not. He says, you know, I don't really practice. I don't really believe, you know, whatever. <clears throat> and then he said this. He just kind of out of the blue, he just goes, you know, because, you, know, you know, things like, like the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. Like, I just, I don't buy any of that kind of stuff. And, and I said, well, why don't you, I said, why don't you believe that? And he said, well, you know, because of the laws of physics and all that, you know. Today we are continuing in our series called Barriers to Belief. And the basic, uh, basic premise of this whole series is that we all have barriers. There are barriers to, uh, that hinder us from being able to have and experience things that we would like to experience in life. I've said, you know, if you, maybe you love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but you developed an allergic reaction to peanuts, right? So that's a barrier, hinders you from having what it is that you would like to have. And I think for many, of, for many people in our culture, they would like to believe. They would like to believe in God, but they have these barriers, these barriers to belief, and it comes in the form of these questions, often these intellectual questions that hold them, hold them off from embracing uh, Christianity completely. And, and so we've looked at a number of these different issues. We've looked at the question of suffering, uh, why is there suffering in this world? And, and we've looked at the issue of hell. I spent a whole sermon on hell. Uh, you can imagine that. And, and we, we've just looked at a lot of these different issues. And today we're looking at this question really of, of doubt and, and specifically doubt about the Bible. It, it comes in the form of this question, can I trust the Bible? Because I think there are many people in our culture that would, would really love to be able to trust the Bible. And, and, and they would read something like what we find here in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving, giving light to the eyes. And I think there are people in our culture like, well, I would, I would, love, I would love to believe that that, that was true. I, you know, honestly, my, my wife, before she became a Christian, one time she was, she was talking with some of her friends, Christian friends, and she said something to the effect of, boy, I just wish that there was a book that had all the answers. And I'm telling you, listen, if you cannot be better set up than that. Like, you get into a conversation and, and you don't, I'm not sure if this is a time to talk about the Bible and Jesus. I'm sorry, you're not going to get a better chance than that, right? And so she just said that because even when she wasn't a Christian, she, she longed for, for this. And I think there are people in our, our culture that, would long to be able to believe that there, there is this answer book that can provide the answers that they need to life, but they doubt, they question it. So, so we're going to look at, can I trust the Bible? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna address three issues. Can I trust the Bible scientifically, historically, and culturally? Now, as some of you might already be imagining here, uh, just <clears throat> uh, I have bitten off way more than I can chew. Uh, I don't know if there's any CPR certified people here today, but but uh, just give me some time. I'm probably going to start choking because I have this is this is this is way too much. There's a lot to, to be completely honest with you. I debated whether or not I should stretch this out over a couple of weeks, but in full disclosure, uh, I'm going to be gone the next two Sundays, and so I figured I don't know that I should wait to, to bring it back. So I just kind of packed it all in. So this is fire hose method. So just 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 be be beware of that. But here it is. Can I trust the Bible scientifically, historically, and culturally? First of all, can I trust the Bible scientifically? And, and this, this goes back to what, 
my, my father's friend said, you know, I can't believe in, the, in the, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, all that, right? Because the law of physics says that can't happen. And there's this, this kind of pervasive sense in our culture that hasn't science proven that miracles can't happen? And, and I think the answer to that is, 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 is kind of simple. Here's what it is. To say, listen, listen to this, to say that science has proven that miracles can't happen would be a little bit like taking a metal detector to the beach, going around, spending the, the day, you know, scanning the beach and finding different metal objects uh, and, and then at the end of the day, announcing that you have, have proven that since the only thing that you found was metal, then that's all there is underneath the beach. Since that's the only thing that you found with your, your metal detector, the only thing that you found was metal, well, then that's, that's, that's all that there can be. And so similarly, when people say, look, uh, you know, all that science it finds is natural causes for things, so therefore, that's all there can be. Well, but let's think about this for a minute. Of course, the only reason a metal detector finds, of course it only finds metal. That, that's what it's equipped to do is to find metal. That's exactly what it's equipped to do. It's not going to find anything other than metal. And science is equipped to find natural causes. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. I mean, you, you can't fault a scientist for looking for a natural cause any more than you would fall the metal detectorist. I don't know if that's what they're called. <clears throat> you can't fall the metal detectorist for, 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 finding, for finding metal. That, that's exactly what it's equipped to do. You see, science has not proven that natural causes are the only causes. That is a, a methodological assumption on which scientific inquiry is based. So it's, 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 it's of course, that's all they're going to find. Asking a scientist to find a supernatural cause is like asking some guy with a metal te- detector to go out and find bubblegum wrapper. Science has not proven that there are only natural causes. It is the methodological assumption on which scientific inquiry is based. But, of course, I think, actually, this... Uh, this psalm highlights something for us, and that is that to some degree, we might be dealing with a false dichotomy here. And here's what I mean. Just because something isn't a miracle doesn't mean that it isn't miraculous. Just because something isn't a miracle doesn't mean it isn't miraculous. Just because something can be explained naturally doesn't mean that it isn't ultimately the result of something supernatural. And this emerges here from this passage because what do we discover here in, in the first, uh, first six verses is we discover the psalmist celebrating a, a number of different things, but in one of the things that's being celebrated here is the order of the universe. It's the, it's the order of, of the way things are, right? So uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display their knowledge. There's a sense of dysregularity. That day after day and night after night, it just displays, it just displays the knowledge of God. It's celebrating this order. Verse 6, talking about the sun. It says, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. It's saying this is just something that it regularly does. You see, it's, it's celebrating the, the order 
of our, of our universe. And, and the, the ironic thing about that is that it's precisely the order that we find in our universe that, that allows scientific inquiry to be so fruitful. See, what, what scientific inquiry seeks to do is, is to find these universal laws, these, these, these patterns of, of regularity. And, and so what's interesting is that, is that finding these, these universal laws uh, what the psalmist would say is, is far from being a reason to not believe in God, it's, it's actually a reason to praise God. It's not a reason not to believe in God, it's, it's, actually, a reason, it's actually a reason to, to, to praise God. In fact, you know, some, uh, some, some have argued, I think it's an interesting point, that, that within, within Western culture, um, one, one, of the reasons, one of the reasons it seems why uh, the scientific movement even started um, is is because because people had been had been influenced by a Christian worldview and had been influenced by things like Psalm 19, where where they'd come to believe there's sort of order in the world, and so there's order to be discovered. In other words, if if you believe as as many cultures did in the ancient world, that really the the universe was just a, a chaotic, you know, a bunch of chaotic gods who you just never knew what they were going to do. It was just at, at their own whim, they'd do this or they'd do this, and there was, you know, there was no way of predicting what they were ever going to do. And you see, if, if, if that's your worldview, you think it's all, it's all chaos, then you're not really going to be motivated to be looking for universal principles. You're not going to be looking for things that you can predict will occur over and over again. It's precisely the fact that they had come to believe that there was this God of order that actually said, hey, you know, maybe we, should, maybe we can try to figure out what these laws of nature are in the first place. So, so far from... Uh, far from being something that counts against God's existence, what this psalm is saying, it's actually a reason to celebrate. It's a reason to celebrate. In some, in some, some sense, what Psalm 19 here is, is saying, it's a little bit like if you were to praise the CEO of a company who had done such a great job of bringing order out of chaos. They had managed to, to set up such incredible and efficient systems that the CEO, the CEO could go on vacation sometimes and things would keep going. It would, just, it would just keep running. The CEO could come and intervene and be involved and, and whatnot as a good CEO would do, but, but also had set it up such that things run well. Things kind of run well on their own. And, and so you wouldn't say, well, you, you know, the, there isn't a CEO. You would celebrate. You, and that's, that's kind of what this is saying. So so again, the, the order that we find, well, this it doesn't discount because the, the point again here is that just because something isn't, isn't or because something can be explained naturally doesn't mean that it isn't ultimately the result of something supernatural. You see, at the end of the day, here's really what it comes down to. It comes down to faith either way. Because you see, you see, I, I think some... Sort of uh, naturalists will say, "Well, no, no, I don't. I'm not. I don't believe in faith, right? I, I just believe in science." But the, the problem is, at the end of the day, here's what it comes down to: believers, at the end of the day, will say, "God is the reason for this." But to a, to a, an atheist, the end. You know what they say? Chance. It's chance. This happened by chance. But you see, it's it's just as much faith in chance as it is. Faith in God, and, and I, would, I would actually argue that there, there are good reasons to suspect that actually it takes more faith to believe in chance 
than it does to believe in God. And I could talk about that, but, but that would be better if I did a series called Barriers to Unbelief. You see, because there's a lot of barriers to, to unbelief as well. Okay, so has science uh, disproven the whole idea of the miraculous, of the supernatural? No, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, science hasn't proven that there can't be a such thing as a supernatural event, that, that everything is natural. Rather, that is an, a methodological assumption on which scientific inquiry is based. And secondly, just because something is uh, uh, can be explained naturally doesn't mean that it doesn't ultimately have some sort of supernatural cause. So that, that's the first thing. But, but then what about specifically? And here's, what about specifically the issue? This is kind of a hot issue in, in our culture today. What about specifically the issue of creation? and human origins. What about that? I mean, isn't it true that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are what they say is in conflict with what science teaches? And of course, not all scientists agree, so that's another whole discussion. But isn't it true that what Genesis 1 and 2 says conflicts with what modern science says about how creation and everything is here? And the simple answer to that is this. It depends on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. And, 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 and part of the reason for this, let me, before I even get into that a little bit, is one of the things that we do need to realize is that whatever Genesis 1 and 2 are saying about how God created things, we need to realize that it seems that the primary purposes of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to address the issue of how, but the issue of who. It's primarily concerned with who created the universe, who created everything. In fact, if you go back and you look at Genesis 1, I think this is quite remarkable. In Genesis 1, in, there are 31 verses in Genesis 1. And if I'm right about this, I counted and I might have missed or something like that. But the word God or Yahweh is used 32 times in those 31 verses. God did this. God did this. God did this. God did this. You see, the, 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 the focus here is that God is the one who created everything. And, and one of the things we need to realize, of course, is is we need to think about who the original, the original audience would have been of, of these, these stories, and it would have been the Israelite community after they had come out of, of Egypt. And I want us to think about this. They, they've been in captivity in Egypt for hundreds of, hundreds of years, and so they've been in captivity, and they've, they've actually been under the influence of Egyptian religion. And so they, they've been under the influence of, of Egyptian gods and Egyptian worship and all of this. So you see, to... To an early Israelite reading Genesis 1, the, the first thing that they would think about when they see on day 4 the, the creation of the sun is they're not thinking about a burning ball of hydrogen. They're thinking about Ra the sun god. Ra the sun god, one of the main gods of the Egyptians, and what that powerfully communicates to them is <laughs> Yahweh created all of this. Our god is the one. It, it, it's who Who is the one who is sovereign over all things? So you see, in in that sense, Genesis 1 has a flavor that is similar to what we find here in in Psalm 19, right? I mean, Psalm 19 is not a scientific treatise on uh, on how the sun, you know, works or whatever, right? I mean, this is a celebration of God's sovereignty over all things, right? So that's the first thing we need to see. And I think that's helpful to understand that what it's primarily talking about is who, now, is that saying that Genesis 1 and 2 is not talking at all about how God does it? No. 
It's not saying that, but I think what it does help us to understand is that since the who is the priority, it helps us to understand why it is that there's so much disagreement over what Genesis 1 and 2 says in terms of how. When I was in seminary, um, I I had the privilege, I had a a group of guys, I was up in Boston going to seminary, and we would get together every couple of months. And we would, 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 well, we formed what we called uh, the Boston Tea Party. It was our little club. And we would, we would get together and we would drink tea at this, uh, this little pub in downtown Boston called the Green Dragon. And we would get together every couple months and we would, we would talk theology in the Green Dragon. And there was something about the aura of the Green Dragon, because actually the rumor hath it that colonial Bostonians, that, that, when, that the Green Dragon was the, was the first place where they started to talk about revolting against the British. So that's kind of the, the aura of, of the green dragon. So when you go in there and you start talking theology, you kind of get this sense that you might change the world, right? So we would go to the green dragon, and we would, we, would, we would talk about theology. And what I loved about the seminary that I went to is that they held to some core convictions, but then they realized that there were some other kind of theological issues that you could kind of go either way on. There were some that were not as essential. So they held, for example, to the centrality of the gospel, and they, they held to the centrality of the authority of the Bible. These were just two major things that my seminary held to. But there was a lot, outside of that, there was a lot of, you know, kind of dis- disagreement or dif- differing views, different denominations. We had Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals, and we had people from different countries, and I mean, all over the place. So we would get together at the Green Dragon, and we would talk about theology, and we would disagree. We, you know, we'd talk uh, believer's baptism versus infant baptism. You know, we'd talk... You know, uh, post-millennialism, amillennialism, pre-millennialism, post-mid, uh, pre-trib, you know, whatever trib. And, and, and we would get together and we would talk about cessationism versus continuationism and, and superlapsarian and infralapsarian. I mean, you go on and on and on and on. And we, we, we would often come to different conclusions. Now, we, we, we didn't, it's not like we didn't think these issues were important. Oh, no, no, you get a bunch of pastors together, look out. I mean, they, they think these things are important, but we realize that we, we weren't challenging our, whether or not we were Christians or not because we held to these core essential convictions and realized that some of these other things, you know, we can kind of agree to disagree on. And the reason that I say that is I think that when we come to Genesis 1 and 2 and we ask this question, what does it say about how God created things? we need to realize that this is one of these issues, that there's just a wide range of views amongst Bible-believing Christians. There is a wide range of views on how this can be interpreted. There are some who their interpretation, the way they interpret it, then there is a significant amount of conflict between what they think the Bible is saying and what much of modern science is saying. But there are other Bible-believing Christians who their interpretation of it, there's very little, if any, conflict between what the Bible is saying and, and what modern science is saying. And so what I would simply say is that to somebody who is looking to embrace the Christian faith, this need not be a barrier. In the same sense that you, you wouldn't expect you to figure out before you become a Christian, if you're post-mill, pre-mill, or all, I mean, most, most of you don't even know who are Christians here. You don't even know what those are necessarily, right? You wouldn't necessarily need to figure that out before you become a Christian. And I would say the same thing is true about this, that, that trying to figure out this issue before one becomes a Christian, would be a little bit like arguing with your wife about where to put the sofa in the living room before you've even bought the house. I mean, 
you know, buy the house. You'll, you'll, you'll figure out where to put the sofa. I mean, maybe you never will. Maybe you'll argue about it your, your whole marriage. That's certainly possible, but buy the house. Tim Keller just puts it this way. He says, since, Christians believe, since Christian believers occupy different positions on both the meaning of Genesis 1 and the nature of evolution, those who are considering Christianity as a whole should not allow themselves to be distracted by this intramural debate. The skeptical inquirer does not need to accept any one of these positions in order to embrace the Christian faith. Rather, he or she should concentrate on and weigh the central claims of Christianity. Only after drawing conclusions about the person of Christ, the resurrection, and the central tenets of the Christian message should one think through the various options with regard to creation and evolution. So, is the Bible, is, is modern science in conflict with the Bible? I'd say I don't think so. Not necessarily. Is, is, what about historically? Right? See, I told you I bit off way more than I could chew. You guys ready? The next two are not nearly as long. What about historically? Is, is the, is, is, isn't it true you know, that, that modern science and, and whatnot and history has, has shown the Bible to be historically inaccurate? Now, this is a, a huge subject. This could be an entire series, uh, let alone one sermon, let alone one point in a three-point sermon. So I'm going to narrow the focus here. I'm going to take a cue from what, what Tim Keller says in that, in that aforementioned quote, and I'm just going to focus in on the resurrection of Jesus for a minute here. Because the reality is, is that if you don't believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus, it really doesn't matter what else you think about the rest of the Bible. So I'm going to focus in on that. Now, even that could be, I mean, I, I read one book that's 800 pages just on that issue, so I'm obviously going to have to try to try to condense this here a little bit. And I'm just going to offer you a few things. I mean, one of the things I could do is I, I could, you know, I could do things like we could talk about how if you, if you can't trust uh, the Bible, you can't trust the, the, the manuscript evidence for the Bible. In other words, if you think, you know, isn't the Bible just copies of copies of copies of copies, and how do we know that what we have is the same as what they had back then? I could say, I could, I could point out that if you don't trust the Bible because of the manuscript evidence, then really you can't trust just about any document in the ancient world. Because the, the manuscript evidence for the, for the New Testament is is far superior to virtually every document in the ancient world. So if you can't trust the manuscript evidence for that, you're going to have to just basically not trust uh, any ancient, doc- pretty much any ancient document. So I, I could, could talk about that. Uh, I, could talk about, um, I could talk about how, um, you know, I could talk about how some people think, well, didn't, didn't they just, you know, how do we know that the disciples didn't just make up these stories, you know? Or, or maybe later generations, how do we know that they didn't make them up? And the reason I'd say that is, that is that the chances that they made them up, it seems about as likely, okay, it's about as likely that they made up those stories as it would be for you to fabricate a letter of recommendation to law school from your grandmother. Okay, what do I mean by that? Think, think about this. Imagine, imagine that you're sitting on the review board uh, for a law school. And you're looking at different applicants, and they send you, you know, they give you their letters of recommendation. And, and one of them, you know, poor soul, gives you a letter of recommendation from their grandmother, right? Now, what are you going to think to yourself? You're like, oh, my gosh, that's the, that's the best they could do is get a letter of recommendation from their grandmother? What you're not going to think is they made it up, right? I mean, why, if you're going to make up a letter of recommendation, 
you're not going to fabricate one from your grandmother, right? You're going to fabricate it from, from some sort of reputable source. And here's the point. In the ancient world, in, in that period, women's testimony was, was not considered much of anything at all. And yet in the New Testament, in all four Gospels, the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women. There's simply, there's no reason, nobody would make that up. So we could talk about that. We could talk about that. But, but what, I'm, what I want to do instead is simply just kind of, kind of put this out there and say this. I think that anybody who, who really looks into the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I think what they're going to discover is that it takes just as much faith, if not more faith, to not believe that he rose from the grave than anything. I think if you really look into it, if you approach it with an, with an open mind, right? G- going back to, to what I said earlier about do you have an open mind to the possibility of supernatural intervention or are you closed-minded? You know, Christians are often seen as closed-minded people, but I think in this issue, the, foot is on the, or the shoe is on the other foot. Can, can we be open-minded about this? Because I think that if you're open-minded about approaching this, this issue, I think that what you'll discover when you look at the, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, what you'll discover is that it takes just as much faith, if not more faith, to believe that he, he didn't rise from the grave. You see, you, you, you can't, I can't give you scientific evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. I can't give you that. And, and of course, the, the reason for this is that, well, the very nature of the event itself is something that science could never establish. This goes back to the earlier point. Again, asking someone to give you scientific evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is like telling somebody to go find bubblegum wrappers with a metal detector. Metal detector can't find bubblegum wrappers, and, and science cannot discover a supernatural event. This, this is the whole point. So, so if, if, if the resurrection of Jesus is what the Bible says that it is, not just a natural event, not just a supernatural event, and here, this is about to get really heavy, but an eschatological event. It's not just a natural event or a supernatural event. It's not just an event of this age, but it is the prototypical, prototypical event of the age to come. Then asking to find proof, scientific proof, of the resurrection of Jesus is, as N.T. Wright puts it, like lighting candles to go see if the sun has risen. I can't give you scientific evidence, proof, that Jesus rose from the grave precisely because it falls outside the realm of scientific inquiry. It doesn't fall outside the realm of historical inquiry. You can study it historically, and that's why I'm saying that if you do, I think what you will come to discover is that it takes just as much faith to not believe as it does to believe. In fact, I would suggest maybe even more. Can I trust the Bible scientifically? Can I trust the Bible historically? And finally, can I trust the Bible culturally? You know, we looked at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus a few weeks ago. And it's interesting at the end, uh, the, the rich man, you know, he wants Abraham to send Lazarus to come and, and warn his brothers about hell. And Abraham says, he says to him, but they have the law of Moses. They have Moses. 
And basically the rich man's like, well, no, 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 you got to send somebody. That's not going to do it. And Abraham says, well, if they don't believe the law of Moses, they're not going to believe even if somebody rises from the dead. And I think that's interesting. I think that might be somewhat prophetic even to, to people in this day and age. And that is that for some people, even if you believe Jesus rose from the grave, you still would hesitate to believe in the Bible because there are things about the Bible that culturally rub you the wrong way. Right? So, and, and we've looked at some of these things already. Like, you know, what about isn't it true that the Bible endorses slavery? You know, and, and isn't, you know, isn't it true that the Bible is oppressive to women and, 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 and all of that? And, the, you know, I could, we could try to deal with these issues. I've dealt with some of them already, but... What I would rather do is I'm just going to kind of give you a couple of principles to, to, to think about when you are reading the Bible, when you approach the Bible, and, and what you should do if you come across a passage of Scripture that really rubs you the wrong way. You're just like, I just can't, I can't buy this. I can't resonate with this. And the first, the first thing that I would ask you to consider is simply this. Is it possible that you're not reading it correctly? Is it possible that your interpretation of it is not really what it's saying, and, and I'll use this example. I mean, I used I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think. Paul tells, he, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Right, now you could read that, and you're like, see, right there, Bible, it's, it endorses slavery. But here's the thing, if you look a little more carefully, what you'll discover is that, is that Paul, yeah, he, he tells, says, slaves, obey your, your masters, but Paul also wrote a book called Philemon. And it's a letter in which Paul, he's talking to a slave owner. And apparently what had happened is that the slave owner, one of his slaves, had run away and it seems like had taken something from him, right? So it seems like he'd probably done two things illegal here. And, and Paul is writing to the slave owner and he's saying, he's asking him, please, please forgive him. In fact, don't just forgive him. Welcome him back as a brother. Because you guys are both Christians, and we're, we're, all, we're all brothers. We're all one in Christ. You see, you, you read that, and then you realize that when Paul says, slaves obey your earthly masters, in that context, what he's primarily saying is, look, whatever station you're in, whatever context you're in, as Christians, we're called to serve. We're called to submit to authority. You know, whether that authority should be that way or not is another whole question. But as, as Christians, our basic mode is to serve and submit. That, that, that's all that he's saying, right? But if you didn't know that, you would read that verse and, you, and you'd think, well, see, it endorses slavery. So the first thing when you come across a passage of Scripture and you're, you're like, oh, I don't know if that rubs me the wrong way, is it possible that you're not reading it correctly? Secondly, if you read the Bible and you come across a passage of Scripture and it rubs you the wrong way, you need to ask yourself this. <clears throat> Maybe the problem isn't with the Bible Maybe the problem isn't with your interpretation of the Bible. Is it possible that the problem is with you? Zing. Oof. Is it possible that it's with you? Is it possible that, that maybe you have cultural blinders on? Is it, is it possible that you, you that rubs you the wrong way just because of the way you happen to see things? You know, we... we we talked a couple of weeks ago about how the, the title of this series is Barriers to Belief, um, but what it really should be called is Barriers to Belief for Suburban Americans. 
Because, you see, if you go to other parts of the world, many people, it'd be a completely different set of barriers to believe. You know, for people in, in modern Western culture, we struggle with this concept of hell. We don't understand how there could be hell with God. You know, that doesn't make any sense. But if you go to other parts of the world, they don't struggle with the concept of judgment and hell. They struggle with the concept of grace and forgiveness. And they don't understand how can God be a God of grace and forgiveness, right? So, so if you think about it, if the word of God, really, if the Bible really is the word of God, wouldn't it make sense that it rubs us all wrong differently in different ways? Let me put it a different way. If you're only willing to worship a God whom you completely agree with, is it possible that the God you are worshiping isn't the God who created you, but a God that you have created? If you'll only worship a God that, that, that you agree with, are you sure you're worshiping the God that created you? Is it possible that, that maybe you're worshiping a God that you have created? So you see, at the end of the day, what this points to is the fact that at the heart of belief is humility. It takes humility to believe in God. I think we see that actually here in this passage, verse 7. <clears throat> the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Making wise the simple, there's this sort of admission of, of ignorance. Who am, I, who am I to know? Who am I to know? Submission, this humility of, of, of our ignorance before God. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, that reverence, that respect, that humility before God is the beginning of wisdom. You see, it's this humility that says, who am I to know? I'm ignorant. We see humility in terms of our ignorance, and we also see in here, a humility with relation to our lack of holiness. We see this in verse 12. Verse 11 and 12. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. You see right there, it's this humility. It's not only am I ignorant, but I'm also sinful. It's this humility before God. This is what is required. But, I, of course, I think this, this kind of brings us back a little bit full circle here because then the question becomes, well, you see, to humble yourself before someone requires that you trust them. <laughs> right? How do you trust them? How do you humble yourself before somebody if you, don't, if you don't trust them? How can I trust this God if I'm going to humble myself before this God? How, how am I, if I'm gonna, if I'm, I've got to trust him if I'm going to humble myself before him. And here's where we get to the very heart of the gospel. We can humble ourselves before God because he first humbled himself before us. We humble ourselves before God because he first humbled himself before us. Philippians chapter 2. Let me just read for you this 
gets at the heart of the gospel, talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Michel Foucault, I think that's how you say his name, is a French philosopher. And he says that you really cannot trust truth. You can't trust truth. Because truth is really all about power. Truth is really just a power play. Truth, truth is really, truth is just what the people who are in power use to get done what they want to get done. So truth is, is really just propaganda. I mean, you know, truth and propaganda are the same thing. You can't trust truth because it's entirely about power. And you know what? He's right. He's right. Except for the gospel. The gospel is the one truth that escapes this postmodern criticism. Because the truth, the very truth of the gospel is that God surrendered his power. The very truth of the gospel is that the way, paradoxically, the way in which God is sovereign over all things is that he relinquished his power. So Foucault is absolutely right. Listen, you cannot trust anybody. You cannot trust anything. That's that's something that post-modernity has done a great job of showing us, and post-modernity is absolutely right. You you can't trust the academy. Uh, You can't trust politicians, Uh, you can't, you know, you can't trust your parents, you can't trust, you can't even trust me, I mean, look, we're about to take an offering here, five minutes from now, we're going to take an offering, you're going to trust the religious guy, I mean, who knows what my motivations are, listen, I'm not asking you to trust me, I'm asking you to trust the gospel, because the heart of the gospel, the heart, only Christianity has this. The heart of who our God is is a God who has given up his power for us. This is the one truth that you can trust. Many of us know the the children's song, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But there's a sense in which the reverse is true. I can trust the Bible. This I know because Jesus loves me so. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you humbled by your humility. God, I pray we would be overwhelmed by your love. Overwhelmed by your willingness to become a servant. 
God, I pray that in that we would see that we can trust you. So God, I pray that you would break down the barriers to belief. The barriers that (coughs) hinder us from embracing you. Both those who do not profess and even those who do and yet find themselves holding back. God, I pray that we would see in the cross the one truth that we can trust. And we would surrender ourselves completely to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.